All right, we are in, uh, still in the Ten Commandments, uh, looking at how the gospel uh, and law come together. Now, we've mentioned that sometimes we think of law and gospel, law and grace, not uh, being opposed to one another, but, th- but they're not. They, they work together. Grace is meaningless without law. Grace is meaningless unless there is a standard we have violated. And, and then conversely, grace is not simply getting us off the hook. It's trying to transform us into, into people who embody the law, who embody righteousness. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the sixth command, uh, do not murder. Now, when we look at the list of the Ten Commandments, we, we come to them and we, we may say, well, you know, okay, I do that. I'm not even sure it's really a bad thing. You know, the rest thing, you know, eh, I don't know about that. And um, yeah, I guess maybe. It, it's some things we concede. Okay, you're right. I, I, I probably, I'm not always respectful of other people's property. Maybe I've, I've, I've taken some things from work, which I haven't, shouldn't do that. And maybe I haven't, you know, I've shaded the truth here and there. But when we come to this, this commandment, do not murder. We may think to ourselves, okay, some of the things I might have done, they're bad but understandable. But murder? Murder is bad, bad, bad. I, I, no, I, I have not committed murder. We, we, we feel like the violation of the command is pretty distant from us. Or is it? Are we as innocent as we would like to think we are? And that's what we're going to explore this morning. That's always dangerous territory for a pastor to go into, basically saying, hey, this thing that you think you haven't done, guess what? You did it. Uh, most people don't like being told that they're guilty of something, but that's what we're going to be exploring this morning, and we are going to be in some uncomfortable territory. Let's uh, look at our readings from this morning. We're beginning in Exodus 20. I'll read it at the beginning and then read a lot of scripture, and then I'm going to emphasize Exodus 20 again at the end. Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Genesis 1 Beginning in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Genesis nine, verse five, and for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Notice the, the, the tension there. Don't take life, have life flourish. Matthew 5, you have heard heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then again, Exodus 20, you shall not murder. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you that your spirit has already met with us as we've uh, been engaged in prayer, as we've been engaged in your praise. We pray that you would be with us now as we submit ourselves to your word. Would your spirit open our hearts, open our minds, our ears, our eyes to receive the message you have for us. 
a hard message maybe uh, as we begin to see that our guilt extends further than, than we would like to admit. But Lord, make us receptive to that and also receptive to your grace, a grace that changes us. Father, make us more like Jesus in these moments than when we came. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, how many of you are familiar with the movie Murder on the Orient Express? Not the most recent one. I'm talking about 1974. Have you all familiar with that incarnation of the movie, that that embodiment? Well, if if you're not familiar with it, uh, here's the main storyline. There is a a bunch of guests who get on a train called the the Orient Express, and uh, they get snowbound. But in the passenger car, there's an American businessman named Samuel Ratchet, and he turns up dead. He's been stabbed 12 times. Um, it's later discovered that he's not really uh, Samuel Ratchet. That's, that's an identity he assumed. He's really a mob boss. And that mob boss was responsible for the kidnapping and killing of an infant girl named Daisy Armstrong. And the, 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 the movie begins to, you know, once it establishes those facts, flows out from there, and it becomes a whodunit. Who did it? Was it this woman named Harriet Belinda Hubbard, also known as Linda Arden, who was the grandmother of the the infant girl who was killed? Was it Greta Olson, the nursemaid of the little girl? Was it Countess Helena uh, Adrenye, the aunt of the little girl, or her husband, uh, Count Rudolph? Was it Pierre Paul Michael, the father of the maidservant of that home who was falsely accused of the murder and then committed suicide as a result of the accusation, but she didn't do it. Was, was it her father? Was it, was it the father's army buddy, Colonel uh, Arbuthnot? And then the list goes on from there, and, and interestingly, the list adds up to 12 people. There are 12 suspects on, on, on the list, and uh, all have motives, all have opportunity, and then the famed detective, Hercule Poirot, uh, puts his uh, considerable expertise at work to, fi- to ferret out the truth. Who done it? <clears throat> and at the end, <clears throat> he comes to the conclusion that either it was a mob hit or everyone did it. Everyone had taken hold of the knife and plunged it into the man. Now, I'm not here to say that I think everyone in this room is somehow complicit in an unsolved murder in the metro area. You're not guilty in that sense. I'm not saying that. But, but the guilt of murder is not so far from us as we think. Because the command to not commit murder, don't take life, means that we should be about the business of giving life, seeing life, human life flourish. And to understand <clears throat> the importance of that, We need to understand the gift God has given us in life. And sometimes we take life for granted because we we, we see it all around us. Anywhere we go on the planet Earth, we find life. We we, we tend to think, oh, this is a really hostile environment. Life can't exist there, and then we find it. Uh, We find it at the bottom of the ocean floor near near thermal vents, you know, where basically... Uh, molten rock is coming out. Well, life is there. We find it in volcanic lakes that are filled with sulfur. We find life there. We find it everywhere on earth. But despite that fact, life is really a fantastic phenomena from a scientific perspective. Why is that? Well, that's because we observe it nowhere else in the universe than here. 
A lot of people speculate there's got to be life out there somewhere in the universe. There has to be. But the fact remains, we only know that it's here. The universe is a beautiful place. Spectacular uh, pictures that we get from the Hubble telescope and from other uh, satellites. But also, aside from being beautiful, it's desolate. It's barren. Go to the surface of Pluto. There's a certain beauty to the desolation, but it's devoid of life. Life is unusual. Now, the author Doug Adams, the uh, the author of uh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, sort of points this fact out humorously when he talks about the population of the universe. This is the way he describes the population of the universe, none. Given that the volume of the universe is infinite, there must be an infinite number of worlds, but not all of them are populated. Therefore, only a finite number are. And any infinite number, any finite number divided by infinity is zero. Therefore, the average population of the universe is zero, and so the total population must also be zero. He's just making the point life is unusual. From a secular perspective, it's fantastic. It defies the odds. The fact that we're here at all, life is precious. And precious in ways that that we don't normally think. Many of you probably have possessions that you consider precious, right? I have a possession that I consider precious. I think I may have used this some point uh, in my time with you. This is is the Uncanny X-Men issue 142. This is the second half of the storyline, Days of Future Past, the storyline upon which the movie was based, okay, if you're familiar with the X-Men movies. Uh, great art, fascinating tale, uh, very, very valuable as comic books go. Um, it, the, on the open market, it's, it's, it, you could sell it for, if it's in good condition, between $35 and $100, okay? Um, but let's imagine for, for a moment that I, I don't have X-Men 142. I have Action Comics number one. <laughs> Action Comics, someone auctioned off Action Comics number one in 2014. Any guesses for how much it sold for? Fifty-five thousand, a million. Someone said three million. Who said three million? You're very close. Three point two million dollars. And yet, I know the value of those printed pages pales in comparison to the four faces I'm going to show you right there. Those are my children ten years ago. Ah. Oh. Action Comics doesn't even compare. Any four faces would would really do. It would be the same comparison. In other words, there's no comparison at all between a comic book and human life. But what makes that so? What is distinct? What is significant? What's valuable about your existence? Well, God tells us very clearly, you are made in his image. 
Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We bear the image of the divine. And that's why the prohibition against murder is among the earliest explicit commands that we see in the scripture. To put a hedge around life. The consequences for violating that command couldn't be greater. It's the death penalty, Genesis 9, long before Moses, long before the Ten Commandments. This is what God said. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. The conviction is so strong, the the preciousness of life. The same conviction also led Christians from ancient times to, to preserve life. Romans, when they had unwanted children, would often leave them out to be exposed, to die. And Christians would come and save those children and give them to other Christian families to preserve that life. Uh, Life was so precious that it needed to be saved. It needed to be preserved. It was also this conviction that led many Christians to to be involved in the development of of medical practices, of of, of medical charity. Um, uh, there is a strong historical connection between Christian ministry and medicine. It comes from the desire to preserve something as precious as human life. The historian Gary uh, Ferngren, uh, who wrote the book Medicine and Healthcare in Early Christianity, wrote this. Christians cared for the sick within and outside of their community. Their long experience in medical charity led to the creation of the first hospitals, a singular Christian contribution to health care. God gave life and his command not to take it because of its precious nature naturally should lead to his followers to seek to preserve life where we can, through medical care, through protecting uh, the weak from violence, uh, to, to creating and preserving environments that would Help life flourish. That, that matches with who God has called us to be. But the preciousness of life is not, only, is not the only characteristic that we need to apprehend, to get a hold of. Uh, not the only thing that should inform how we should honor this command. Life is precious, but life is also holy. Holy. It's fantastic, it's unusual, but it's holy as well. Holy in the sense that God created it, created it good. He created it perfect. He made human life after his own image. And God calls on us to be holy as he is holy because we're supposed to be like him. And since life is holy, we should sanctify it. Now, what does that mean, to sanctify something? It means to set it apart as different, as special, distinct from other kinds of life. You know, there's lots of life that we have around us. Some of you have pets. I have a dog. Well, my kids would say that I don't love my dog. They love my dog. I'm okay with the dog. They love the dog. But it's not human life. There's something different about us. We're made in God's image we're holy. But modern Western culture has drifted from this. We've undergone a pretty amazing and profound shift in our understanding of human existence. We've lost a vision of human life as distinct from other life and even diminished the fantastic nature of life. Um, 
The comedian uh, Bill Maher spoke about this, and uh, I don't mean to speak disparagingly of Bill Maher in any way, but I think this quote sort of illustrates a common perspective. This is what he said about, about life. I don't think all life is precious. I know people say that all the time, life is precious. I think some life is precious, and some life is just a waste of protoplasm. Now, perhaps Bill Maher is not the best representative of philosophical perspectives in the West, but I do think it's reflective of an attitude common in our cultures. It matches a pattern of dehumanizing life in order to dismiss it, in order to push it aside because it's inconvenient for us to value it. Life is holy. In a sense, it's sacred. Given that fact, though, we have to admit that life is not what it should be. We've fallen. We've fallen from the heights that God has has meant us to reach because of our rebellion, because we wanted to be our own gods. And as we turned against God, what we found is that we turned against each other. Uh, There's rebellion on every side, rebellion against God. We were in tension with one another. Even our own bodies are in rebellion against us in disease and decay. And because of that, we end up facing some very difficult circumstances, uh, def- difficult and crushing situations, uh, a terminal illness where there's, it's going to be accompanied by, by long suffering, uh, a debilitating disease or an injury uh, that will cripple people for the, for a person for the rest of their life, maybe an unwanted pregnancy. I, I remember when my own father was dying of cancer, and being faced with hard decisions as the end approached. And, and my mother, who was struggling with all this, looking for help, talking to the nurse. I remember the night before he died, do, do you want to take extraordinary measures to preserve his life? And my mother just there in tears saying, oh, no, no, we don't want to do that. Do we, Daryl? Last week I asked the question, when do you become an adult? For me, it was in that moment. There are hard, hard circumstances that we face that relate to issues of life and death. And our culture tends to champion, not not life, but the good life. It's got to be the good life over against everything else. And, And when we're faced with pain, we need to escape it. We need to avoid it somehow. But how do you ethically... Um, handle these crushing situations. How do you escape pain and yet also value human life? You know, if you have an equation there, on one side you have pain and suffering, and the other you have the value of human life. Well, pain and death are uncompromising. We can't get rid of that. We can devalue human life. And so that's what we do. Someone faces a terminal illness. Well, the life of suffering isn't worth living, so we shouldn't. Now, I want to clarify, there's a difference between letting a terminal illness take its course and actively snuffing out the fading light of life. But we don't want to face suffering, so often we hold out death as an escape. A debilitating disease or injury, well, that's not a full life. An unwanted pregnancy, well, that's not human life. Our culture dehumanizes life to make it easier 
to take that life. Now, I would imagine that some of you in this room have faced those crushing circumstances. I would imagine some of you bear the psychological, the spiritual scars of those decisions. And I am not here to condemn. I am here to say that the grace of God wants to redeem us wants to change us, transform us from the people we have been, from people who are lost, afraid, focused on self, and maybe at times kind of ruthless in our choices. But God wants to change us, transform us from people who devalue life to people who seek the flourishing of human life, those made in the image of God, to treasure life to the very end. And he begins that process with forgiveness with forgiveness. He gave his life for yours. That's how precious God thinks you are. And if you need help receiving that forgiveness because of hard choices you've made, if you have a hard time believing that forgiveness, of really wrapping your heart and mind around that, we have people who are willing to come alongside you to process that. To let you know, indeed, God loves you. I have some names on the screen there. There are some of the leaders of our Stephen ministry. If you need to talk with somebody, contact them. Take down their email address. Because they're, be, they're going to be willing to work through these issues with you or put you in contact with someone who maybe has faced the same exact thing you have, made the same choices you have, and has come to a place of knowing that God loves them. Folks here are ready to help you. Again, life is holy. So what do we do with that? We sanctify it. We set it apart. And perhaps today that begins by grasping the lengths God has gone to, to redeeming your life. And maybe that will lead you to extraordinary uh, measures to preserve life, to set it apart as special, to sanctify it. The last thing I want to say about life is that it is, it is dignified. It's precious, meaning life is unlike anything else in the creation. It's holy. Human life is like no other life there is in the creation. And it's dignified, meaning it's worthy of your respect. It's worthy of your respect. And we have to acknowledge in this country, we've built our country on the aspiration of respecting the humanity of all people. That's the aspiration that we have. But we haven't done it perfectly. And in some ways, in some places, we can say we've been abject failures. And the church, the American church, shares in the striving, the aspiration of realizing that, but also failures in this regard. We regularly divide ourselves uh, along Cultural lines, racial lines, political lines. You know, Sunday morning has a, has a particularly uh, unflattering uh, phrase associated with it. 11, particularly 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Some people refer to it as the most, anybody know? Segregated hour. We divide, we consider people other, and then we dehumanize because it makes it easier to talk about them in the most inhumane ways. How many of us 
refer to the other party, whatever party that is, people here from different political stripes, but we refer to people in the other party as dumb, foolish. Those are elitist idiots. That's Walmart trash. We define someone as a thug. We call someone a racist and become dismissive of their humanity. And, and uh, this is the way I wrote this, and I'm realizing how awful it was that I wrote it this way. It says, my personal favorite, you know, my personal favorite put down. I could have a favorite put down. <laughs> but I have to admit, I, I, it's my go-to. I, I don't often say it, but I, in my head I'll say it. I don't, any of you remember uh, the uh, animated cartoon Mr. Magoo? I go, man, what a Magoo. Someone who just doesn't know what they're talking about. They're, they're blind. They're, it leads them into foolish situations. What a magoo. <laughs> and perhaps, uh, perhaps, you know, some of those things, they're accurate descriptions. They're, they're true. But when we say them in disdain, when we say them in anger, we display the very heart of murder. And that's, just, that's not my assessment. That's Jesus' assessment. Matthew chapter 5. You heard... That it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, when judgment being death penalty. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, the death penalty. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now the word Jesus used there, fool, the Greek word is <clears throat> raka, which... Uh, Quite literally means empty-headed. Another way you can think of it is uh, they're dull, they're dim-witted. It was a common insult. It was a common way of robbing someone of their dignity. And it was worthy of the same judgment as murder, at least in God's eyes. Why? Because robbing people of their dignity is an aggressive attempt to lessen the humanity of someone else. It's serious business. As C.S. Lewis reminds us uh, of the truth, here's a quote that I probably, I, I use portions of this quote here and there, uh, so it's probably familiar to you because it's, it's a great quote. This is what he wrote in The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn we must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. God calls on us to respect each other. Because this creates an environment where human dignity can flourish. It creates an environment where human life can flourish. And, we would, and when we deny it to others, when we become dismissive, disdainful, angry, we are walking the path of murder. We have to see that just because we haven't taken a life doesn't mean that we're not guilty of devaluing life. Doesn't mean that we're not guilty of murder in our hearts. You know, this idea of recognizing humanity. I'm going to talk a little, I'm going to talk about political ideas as opposed to political organizations. But this idea of recognizing 
someone's humanity is what's at the heart of me too. Recognizing someone's humanity is what's at the heart of Black Lives Matter. I'm not talking about the political organization. I'm talking about the movement. Can we recognize the humanity of our brothers and sisters who have different skin color than us? I want to say to all people here, whether you're white or Latino or black or Asian, that you are made in the image of God. I recognize that. And you are due the respect and dignity that is inherent in your nature. And I could extend that across any line you can think of, socioeconomic, gender, any line at all. Now, i got to tell you, this is an important idea to me, and sometimes I think that uh, it's a given, and that people will know that I think this and believe this. But the thing is, I'm constantly around people who, who their experience of society is not that. Th- their society has not treated them and recognized their humanity. So I can't just assume that they'll know that. So I need to say it. I need to say it. I respect you. I recognize the image of the divine in you. And I take you seriously. I may not agree with you, but I take you seriously. We have to say it to each other. We have to live it out with each other because that's what it really means to talk about a political phrase. That's what it means to be truly pro-life. We need to pray this prayer. Lord, show us how we can honor this command by not taking life, but instead giving life in our words and deeds. You know, growing up, I didn't always uh, have a sense of the weightiness of life and death. Certainly, living taught me about death and, and violence and murder. And as I was coming to a greater awareness of it, I I saw a movie that I think summed it up so well, the the gravity of this situation. It's the movie Unforgiven. It gets to the gravity of taking a life, but also our culpability as it relates to this command. For those of you who aren't familiar with the movie, Clint Eastwood plays uh, a man named William uh, Money, who is a former, I'll put that in quotes, reprobate. I'll say former because the movie begins to show that he really hasn't changed all that much. He was a killer of women and children. He left that life to marry and to raise a family. But in middle life, after his wife dies, there's a young man, young buck, looking to make a name for himself. He hears of a bounty. There are some guys who've done some awful things, and people have put a bounty on them. And he wants an experienced hand to help him get that bounty. So he comes to to William Money and recruits his help, and they go on this journey. But when that young man finally kills someone for the first time, he feels the weight of what he's done, and he doesn't know how to process it. I'm going to show a clip of that young man interacting with William Money as a way of talking about the weightiness of what God is commanding us. And I would say, please excuse the use of the word H-E double hockey sticks in the, in the <laughs> clip. 
just don't seem real. I ain't gonna never breathe again, ever. How he's dead. And the other one, too. All on account of pulling the trigger. It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have. Yeah. Well, I guess they had it coming. We all have it coming, Captain. That's an ominous line. We all, we all got it coming, kid. Murder to us may seem a very distant thing. We're not responsible for taking someone's life, but things are not always as they appear. In fact, some of us have, maybe have taken a life. Some of us may have taken a life, although we don't acknowledge that action as such. Some of us have committed the essence of murder in our hearts. Some of us are slowly chipping away at someone's humanity, robbing them of life. And all of those, some of us, adds up to all of us. We all got it coming. That's why we need to look to the grace of God. Every last one of us. Look to the grace of God poured out in Jesus' death, the penalty that we should suffer, he took it on himself, that he might give us life, that he might give us forgiveness, but even more than that, give us the power to become people who don't take life from others, but like Jesus, give it. Father, would you change us all that we might be more like Jesus, people who give life and not take it. Let's pray. Father, thanks again for the time we've had here this morning. And we do pray that you would impress upon us the preciousness of life, the sanctity of life, the holiness of it, and the dignity of it. Father, help us not to be people who take it, but to to give and to help life flourish. We pray you would work that in us for our good and your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.